You're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. In this podcast series, we bring international affairs expertise from Stanford's campus straight to you. The United Kingdom has formally declared its intent to withdraw from the European Union. UK Prime Minister Theresa May triggered Article 50 of the Treaty of Lisbon on March 29, 2017. As a result, the Scottish Parliament has voted to hold a second referendum on their independence from the UK so that they can remain in the EU. Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, spoke at FSI in April 2017 and took questions about Brexit, Scottish independence, and the country's role in the world. She was introduced by FSI Director Michael McFall. Uh, Good afternoon. Um, Welcome to the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. Uh, When people say that Californians don't care about European matters, uh, this crowd is a testimony that that is not true. Um, So thank you all for coming. Uh, For those of you who are interested in all things Europe, please go to our website, the uh, the Europe Center at the FSI website. We have a fantastic list of speakers this spring. Um, Six of the seven of the speakers, by the way, are from Europe, so they're not just Americans talking about Europe, but actually Europeans. Uh, But we could not be more delighted than to start this series for the spring quarter with the visit of Scotland's first minister, Nicola Sturgeon, who is here with us today. Uh, I don't know if it was appropriate. Did you do this on purpose to have all these uh, articles in the New York Times just before you came to Stanford? Uh, Your press team deserves a lot of credit because, um, but you have noted that the debate has started again about the future of the UK, the future of the European Union. Um, and nobody is better qualified than to speak about this than the First Minister. Uh, She was voted into the Scottish Parliament in 1999, uh, became the First Minister of Scotland in 2014, the first woman to hold that position. Um, And as you've known, if you read the New York Times or you read the debate about Brexit or anything for that matter regarding the future of the United Kingdom, she is one of the most important interlocutors and voices in talking about the future of what I consider to be, if not our most important ally, one of the most important allies of the United States. So it is a real pleasure to, rec- uh, to welcome to Stanford University First Minister Sturgeon. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Michael. Uh, One of the many interesting things I found out about Michael this morning is that he was born in Glasgow. (laughs) But Glasgow, Montana, rather than Glasgow, (laughs) Scotland. But nevertheless, I'm going to claim that as a a Scottish connection. It is a fantastic pleasure and privilege to be here at this beautiful university. Uh, undoubtedly one of, if not the most beautiful university campuses anywhere in the world. Uh, I'm here in the US this week as part of what we call Scotland Week. Uh, It was President Bush back in, I think, 2008, uh, who proclaimed the 6th of April every year as Tartan Day, uh, the key event in Scotland Week, and so Thursday of this week is is Tartan Day. And Scotland Week and Tartan Day uh, are really intended to firstly celebrate the contribution of Scottish people to the United States down the generations, but also to celebrate the very many links and relationships between Scotland and the United States. Uh, And most importantly, of course, to look at how we strengthen those links in the future. Uh, And one thing that always strikes me uh, as I think about Scotland Week uh, every year is this quite incredible fact. Uh, There are, from time to time, surveys carried out which suggest that almost 30 million people across the United States claim Scots or Scots-Irish ancestry. Uh, However, the official census figure says that there are only 10 million people in the United States who actually have Scots or Scots-Irish ancestry. And what that means is this. There are today somewhere around 20 million people in the United States who are not Scottish but want to be Scottish. (laughs) And I think that's absolutely fantastic. It's a great... 
compliment to Scotland, but it is also a massive opportunity. And let me tell you, it's an opportunity we are determined to take full advantage of. And as far as I'm concerned, if you want to be Scottish, nobody, least of all me, is going to stop you. And, you know, there's a more serious point here. Scotland's modern identity, much like that of the United States, is an inclusive one. Uh, we basically take the approach that if you do want to be Scottish, you can be. And that's very relevant to some of the points that I'll make later on in this speech. You know, many of the ties between Scotland and the United States are evident here in Palo Alto and the surrounding area. Uh, I know there's a, a hill around about 20 miles south of here called Ben Lomond, uh, close to a town called Bonnie Doon, uh, which was named by a Scottish settler. Uh, John McLaren, who was a Scottish emigrant from Bannockburn. Uh, everybody here will have heard of the famous Battle of Bannockburn. Uh, but John McLaren worked on uh, Leland Stanford's estate uh, and was instrumental in establishing San Francisco's Golden Gate Park. So the ties between our two countries are very long-standing. But it's been really clear to me during the two days I've spent here that the connection between Scotland and California uh, ties based on culture and history, trades and commerce, family and friendship continue to flourish. And that's something that means a lot to Scotland and I hope it's something that means a lot to Californians as well. And those international ties are part of what I want to talk about today. I'm going to talk about the desire we have in Scotland, not just to create a fairer and a more prosperous country, but also as a relatively small country to play a big part and make a positive contribution to the world that we live in. But I should perhaps start by looking back at some of the events of the past year, uh, indeed some of the events of, of the last week or so. Uh, I think it's fair to say, and I'm reasonably confident here, I cannot be accused of overstatement or exaggeration. It's fair to say that 2016 was a tumultuous year in politics. Uh, certainly at home in Scotland and in the, the UK as a whole, and of course also here in the United States. Uh, the decisions taken last year will undoubtedly have ramifications for many years to come. And we've seen evidence of that just in the past couple of weeks. Uh, 10 days ago, for example, uh, 27 of the 28 governments across the European Union came together to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the signing of the Treaty of Rome. Uh, the Treaty of Rome, of course, is the uh, foundation treaty uh, of the European Economic Community. Uh, and Scotland has been a member of the European Economic Community, which is now, of course, the European Union, for more than 40 years. That membership has brought us significant economic, social, environmental benefits. However, in addition to that, the, the fundamental principle underpinning the European Union that independent nations work together on equal terms for a common good uh, to uh, tackle some of the problems and see some of the opportunities that few countries can do alone. Uh, that principle uh, appeals to me and to many people across Scotland. As a result, EU membership has become a very important part of Scotland's identity. It speaks to our sense of who we are. Uh, and that is why in 2014, when Scotland had a referendum on whether or not to become an independent country, our membership of the European Union was an important issue. Nobody really argued or debated about whether Scotland should be part of the European Union. The only debate then was uh, about whether we would be if we were independent. And in particular, back in that debate, many of those who opposed Scotland becoming an independent country, including the United Kingdom government, argued that leaving the United Kingdom was a, a risk, that it would threaten Scotland's place in the European Union. Uh, so it's somewhat ironic <laughs> that the opposite has turned out to be true. Uh, when the UK held the referendum on EU membership last year, a large majority of people in Scotland who voted 
62% uh, in fact chose to stay part of the European Union. However, we were outvoted by the rest of the UK. And as a result of that referendum, the UK was the only member state that was not represented at the 60th anniversary celebrations for the Treaty of Rome. Instead, the UK government last week notified the European Commission of its intention to leave the European Union. And Scotland, despite the arguments that were made in 2014 and despite how we voted in 2016, faces being forced to leave the European Union against our will. And what's even worse, perhaps, is that the UK is not just leaving the EU. There is a real danger developing that it will leave the EU in the most damaging way possible. Uh, Scotland and the Scottish Government has proposed over the past few months different ways in which the UK could opt to retain membership of what's called the single market without being part of the European Union and several other countries such as Norway have an arrangement like that. But those proposals have been uh, disregarded by the UK government. Uh, and that could potentially have a, a wide range of impacts. It could mean tariffs for our farmers who export, higher regulatory barriers for trade with Europe. And it's already causing uh, deep uncertainty and anxiety for people who have chosen to live in and work in Scotland from other parts of the European Union. I uh, take a very simple view of anybody who comes to uh, live and work, uh, study in Scotland. You do us a great uh, honour, uh, a great privilege, a great compliment, uh, and we want uh, you to consider Scotland your home. Uh, so the vote to leave the EU and the implications for those who have chosen to live in Scotland or other parts of the UK uh, is a serious one. But it's perhaps worth looking in uh, some detail at what uh, that might mean for Scotland's universities. Uh, for Scotland, as for California, our universities are incredible cultural, social and economic assets. In fact, when the Times Higher Education Supplement published, as it does every year, its rankings of the best universities in the world last year, it showed that Scotland has more world-class universities in those rankings per head of population than any other country in the world, uh, with the sole exception of Luxembourg. Uh, and we're determined, we're determined to beat Luxembourg to the top spot sometime soon. Uh, indeed, I've just attended an event highlighting the research partnership which Stanford has established with five of Scotland's universities, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Heriot Watts, and Andrews and Strathclyde. Uh, and I've just welcomed Heriot Watts' decision to launch a new economic scholarship for US students to be based at Panmure House in Edinburgh. Panmure House is significant and important because it's where Adam Smith lived and worked in the final years of his life. So these examples demonstrate that our universities have a reach that extends far beyond the European Union. But that said, there is no doubt whatsoever that in recent years, membership of the European Union has been fundamental to Scotland's academic success. One sixth of our academic staff are EU citizens from outside of the UK. So are one sixth of all of our postgraduate students. Uh, these EU students are disproportionately likely to be studying subjects such as science and technology, hugely important areas for any country in the modern world. And if you look at research, Scotland benefits hugely from the opportunities for collaboration that are provided by European programmes. These programmes are available to countries inside the single market or which are uh, applying to join the European Union. Um, and that's perhaps why at the end of last year, the principal of Edinburgh University, not somebody who is terribly known for exaggeration, uh, told a, a House of Commons select committee that the impact of Brexit on higher education, and I quote, ranges from bad to awful to catastrophic. It is a very significant and a very serious risk to a sector that is fundamental to Scotland's future. And the reason uh, for running these risks, for leaving the single market as well as the European Union, is that the United Kingdom government has prioritised uh, control of immigration over uh, everything else. But that policy in itself is likely to be damaging to Scotland. Uh, Scotland benefits hugely from the contribution made by people who choose to work or study in our country, whether they come from the rest of the United Kingdom, the European Union, or of course from countries like the United States. 
and historically our level of population growth has been lower than other parts of the United Kingdom, lower than many other parts of Europe. So for the sake of our economic prosperity, uh, we need to see more people choosing to come and live and work in Scotland. Uh, so there are two points perhaps that, that follow from that. Uh, the first is that if that any of you are uh, uncertain what you want to do after you leave Stanford, uh, you are very welcome to come <laughs> to Scotland. Uh, we offer a very warm welcome, uh, a fantastic quality of life. Uh, the whisky is rather good <laughs> in moderation. And I can assure you, I can absolutely assure you that our weather is much more interesting <laughs> than the boring sunshine that you get here in California every single day. <laughs> but the second point is more fundamental and more serious. In my view, it is totally counterproductive for the UK as a whole to prioritise control of immigration over any other outcome for Brexit. But it is especially damaging for a country like Scotland. In fact, it's interesting, uh, at a time when debates about immigration rage in many different parts of the world, that there is no major political party in Scotland today that would argue for uh, constraints on immigration the way we hear in other parts uh, of the world, uh, because we know that would be damaging to our interests. So this is a good example of how Brexit is forcing upon Scotland a policy agenda which is not of our choosing and not in our national interests. So Brexit and the way in which the UK government is choosing uh, to pursue uh, Brexit presents Scotland with something of a dilemma. Uh, we had, as I've already mentioned, a referendum on independence uh, less than three years ago and that's why some people in Scotland entirely understandably are reluctant to have another one in the next two years. However, if we don't give people in Scotland a choice, uh, we will have to accept a course of action determined by a UK government that most people in Scotland didn't vote for, uh, a course which will be deeply damaging to our economy and to our society, perhaps for decades, possibly for generations to come. In my view, that is democratically unacceptable. And that's why the Scottish Parliament last week agree, agreed to seek uh, agreement from the UK government uh, for a further referendum on independence once the final terms of Brexit are known. Uh, and that will mean that rather than having Brexit and a future direction imposed upon us, the people of Scotland will have the opportunity to choose our own future, to choose the direction that we want to take. And in doing so, we will be considering issues that go far beyond the issue of membership in or out of the European Union. Uh, we'll be considering what kind of country we want to be and how we can best achieve that, how we can build a better society at home and make a positive contribution to the wider world. Uh, one of the things that I encountered time and time again during the independence referendum campaign in 2014 was an overwhelming desire to create a fairer society as well as a more prosperous economy. And that desire came from many people who voted against independence as well as uh, from those who voted for it. And it's a desire we are seeking to respond to under Scotland's current devolved powers. Uh, shortly after I became First Minister, the Scottish Government revised our economic strategy. And one of the biggest changes that we made uh, was deciding to promote equality alongside economic competitiveness. And that focus is, first and foremost, a matter of basic morality. Everyone in any society should have a fair chance to fulfil their potential. But it's also an issue of basic economic efficiency. There is strong and, and growing evidence that inequality in Western economies has harmed growth. The UK is a very good example of that. The OECD has estimated that between 1990 and 2010, rising inequality in the UK reduced growth by nine percentage points. Uh, Professor Joe Stiglitz, who taught here at Stanford for more than a decade, is one of the Nobel laureates who serves on my Council of Economic Advisors in Scotland. And he said at the time that tackling inequality is the foremost challenge that many governments face. 
Scotland's economic strategy leads the way in identifying the challenges and provides a strong vision for change. He recognised that a more equal society where everyone can participate to their full potential will lead to a stronger and a more sustainable economy in the longer term. And workers who are well educated and trained, well paid, highly valued and supported will be more productive than those who aren't. Uh, two weeks ago, in fact, there was research published on the happiest countries in the world. Now, as you might expect, countries in developed nations ranked highest. Uh, the United States, I can tell you, was 13th. Uh, the UK was 19th. However, it was quite striking that the five highest positions were all taken by small European countries, Norway, Denmark, Iceland, Finland and Switzerland. Uh, two of these countries are members of the EU and others uh, members of the European single market. Uh, and all of these countries score highly on measures of income equality. Uh, they do considerably better than the UK, for example. So there is really strong evidence for the Scottish Government's prioritisation of inclusion. But there's an important political point to be made here as well, uh, one which I think is relevant in the United States just as it is in the United Kingdom. Uh, policies such as free trade and free movement of people will very often bring benefits to the economy as a whole, but they also have the potential to disadvantage or to be seen as disadvantaging particular areas and particular groups in society. So the sustainability of these policies is, I think, increasingly dependent on our ability to ensure that they benefit not just the few, but the many in our societies. And we saw that in Scotland and in the UK last year. Uh, the vote to leave the European Union had many causes, but we know that people on low incomes were more likely to vote to leave. And when you allow for student numbers, so too were areas with relatively low rates of employment. So the EU referendum uh, posed a real challenge to those of us who support free trade, who welcome immigration, and who believe that the benefits of globalisation, if they are properly managed, and that's an important caveat uh, to stress, but if they are pro appropriately managed, those benefits should outweigh the costs. Uh, and it demonstrated uh, that we can only sustain support for a dynamic and open economy if we do more to build a fairer and more inclusive society. And that's in Scotland what we are determined to seek to do. I think this indeed is one of the most pressing challenges that most developed societies face today. It requires real leadership, and while Scotland does not have all of the answers, no country does, I believe that we are at least asking some of the right questions. I'm well aware that even in Scotland, that voted by such a big margin to remain in the EU, even in Scotland, more than a third of voters chose to leave. Uh, but it is at least possible that one reason why the referendum result was so different in Scotland compared to the rest of the UK is that the Scottish Parliament has often adopted policies with fairness and inclusion at their very heart. Uh, we've taken action, for example, to mitigate some of the uh, very brutal cuts to social security provision uh, that the United Kingdom government has uh, implemented in recent times. So there was maybe less of a sense of people being left behind and disenfranchised. But that emphasis on inclusion, important for economic reasons, is also increasingly important politically as we try to navigate uh, through uh, some of the circumstances that lie ahead. And that commitment to inclusion uh, is also applicable to another issue that is very close uh, to my heart, uh, and that is the issue of gender equality. I was really struck when I read about the history of Stanford to see that women were admitted here on equal terms to men from the very beginning uh, at the insistence of the founders of this university. Leyland Stanford actually pointed out in a letter back in 1893 that if vacations were thrown open to women, there would be a 25% increase in the nation's production. Uh, and it is a simple and overwhelmingly obvious point Nations impoverish themselves if they underuse the talents of more than half of their populations. Uh, and yet that challenge is one that no nation has yet fully uh, risen to. Scotland is trying to take the lead. Uh, we've launched major initiatives in early years care, for example, pr primarily because 
We believe that that's an essential part of ensuring that all children, regardless of their backgrounds, get a fair chance to realise their potential. But it also recognises the importance of childcare in encouraging parents to return to work and in supporting parents, women in particular, to pursue careers. Uh, we also work closely with trade unions and employers uh, to try to boost productivity and encourage fair work practices. And that partnership uh, approach is very different to that taken by many other governments. In some respects, it's quite close, although this is not an exact comparison to the German economic model developed after the war. Uh, that model became known as Rhine capitalism. It was based on a strong sense of partnership between workers, trade unions, businesses and the public sector. It encouraged competitive markets, but combined them with strong social protections. And of course, it's resulted in high levels of innovation, high productivity, and a strong performance in exports. And that approach to the economy, it was based on a very distinct vision of society. Uh, Article one of post-war Germany's constitution states that human dignity is the underpinning principle of the entire state. And that helps to establish the constitutional principle of the social state, a state that strives for social justice. Now, what we're trying to create in Scotland isn't identical, of course. This is a different time and a very different context. But there are similarities. And as with most countries, our concern for human dignity and social justice isn't confined to our own boundaries. We also want to make a positive contribution to the wider world. Uh, later today, I'll uh, fly from uh, California to New York and tomorrow uh, we'll attend meetings at the United Nations. Uh, Scotland was one of the first countries back in 2015 to sign up to the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. Uh, that means we seek to build a fair, prosperous and sustainable society at home and also around the world. Uh, Scotland, as a relatively small country, really has to focus our specific contributions on the world stage. So it's maybe worth talking uh, about two specific areas where we're trying to make a difference. Uh, one of my meetings tomorrow is with the Office of the Special Envoy for Syria uh, at the UN. And of course, we've uh, seen just today another very stark reminder of the horrific impact of the Syrian conflict and the pressing need to find a route to peace. Uh, but tomorrow we'll discuss Scotland's Women in Conflict programme. Uh, that programme prepares 50 women every year to play a part in mediation and conflict resolution. Uh, last year it trained women from seven countries in North Africa and the Middle East. Uh, and the programme is Scotland's way of trying to act on the UN Security Council Resolution 1325, which recognises that women bear many of the worst consequences of civil war and conflict, but are too often excluded from efforts at finding peace and reconciliation. Another area that Scotland prioritises in spreading a positive message across the world is in tackling climate change. Uh, in 2012, we became the first country to establish a climate justice fund for developing countries. And that recognises that the people affected most by climate change are often those who have done the least to cause climate change. And in addition to helping other countries to mitigate climate change, we are also determined to be at the forefront of tackling it. I mentioned earlier the fact that Scotland and Stanford are working together on new technologies in photonics and healthcare. Uh, Scotland, of course, has a long and very proud history in innovation. In fact, we led the world into the industrial age. James Watt's steam engine is arguably the single most important invention of the first industrial revolution. So we want to apply our innovation and engineering expertise to help to lead the world into the low carbon age. Uh, in 2009, the Scottish Parliament passed what at that time were the most ambitious statutory climate change targets in the world. Uh, and we've already met the first of those targets five years early uh, and are looking now to go even further. Uh, we already produce more than 50% of our net electricity demand through renewable energy sources. And we are, in, we are an important development site for some of the renewable technologies of the future. Uh, the world's largest tidal power array is being developed in our Pentland Firth. And the world's largest floating offshore wind farm is due to be built off our northeastern coast. Uh, and I had the opportunity yesterday to discuss all of this with Governor Brown. 
when Governor Brown gave his inaugural address uh, two years ago, or should I say his latest inaugural address uh, two years ago, uh, he pointed out that taking significant amounts of carbon out of our economy without harming its vibrancy is exactly the sort of challenge at which California excels. And he was referring, of course, to California's astonishing track record of innovation, much of it linked to the work done here at Stanford. For both California and Scotland, innovation is part of our history and it's also part of our modern identity. Uh, so the Governor and I were discussing ways in which we can work together in the future. Both of us want to apply our capacity for innovation uh, to tackle what is arguably the biggest environmental, economic and moral issue facing the world today. And there's one final point I want to make about the different issues that I've talked about in my speech. Climate change, peacekeeping, inequality, immigration, the flows of people and talent. And that point is this, that all of them are interrelated. You know, drought exacerbated by climate change may well have been an initial cause of the Syrian civil war. The refugee crisis uh, caused by that war arguably had a direct impact on the debate on the UK's membership of the European Union. Uh, immigration, of course, is a major topic of debate here in the US as well as in Europe. And as we look into the future, we know that the displacement of populations, uh, which will be caused by climate change, especially if global warming, warming exceeds uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius, is likely to dwarf the scale of migration that Europe has seen as a result of the Syrian crisis. So all of this is a good demonstration of the fact that no nation is or can be insulated from our reliance on and our obligations to the wider world. All independent nations have to accept our interdependence. We have to accept that it's not only our own national interests that matter, but the interests of the wider world in which we live. And the best balance between independence and interdependence is, of course, the question that Scotland once again faces. Over the past 60 years, the European Union has built a single market and encouraged economic cooperation while developing common social standards for workers and shared environmental standards. It has enabled independent neighbours to trade and travel freely while respecting the environment and protecting living standards. It has enabled us to work together on some of the world's biggest challenges like climate change. Brexit puts all of that at risk and it forces Scotland to ask itself a fundamental question. Uh, do we remain as we are facing exit from the European Union where we are able to take part in all of that collaboration? Uh, exit against our will at the hand of a United Kingdom government that is uh, determined to curb immigration at the expense of many other things? Or do we choose instead to become an independent country with the opportunities and the challenges that that will undoubtedly entail, but with the freedom it will give us to be an equal partner with other countries across our British Isles, Europe and the wider world? In my own view as a supporter of independence, is that we will choose the second course. Uh, independence combined with inter interdependence and equal partnership is the best way for us to build a fairer society at home and to make that positive contribution to the world. Uh, that is something that will be debated and discussed across Scotland as we move forward. And I'm sure that as we do so, there will again be debate and disagreement about how Scotland best contributes to the world. But I am also sure that yet again, there will be very little disagreement about whether we want to make that positive contribution. Our modern identity will remain open, outward looking and inclusive. People from around the world will always be welcome to call themselves Scottish if they wish to do so, whether they are or are not. And if Scotland, of course, uh, will continue to seek and to build partnerships around the world, including with governments, businesses and universities here in California and across the United States. Uh, so in that spirit, it is a real pleasure to be with you here today to share some of my thoughts about current events, about the challenges we face uh, as a world, 
uh, and to reflect on Scotland's contribution to addressing some of those challenges. Uh, I wish you all a very happy Tartan Day uh, on Thursday. Uh, I hope some of you at least will sport uh, Tartan uh, on Thursday. Uh, I hope that many of you will choose to, to live, work, study, or even just visit Scotland in the future. I can assure you, you will have the warmest of welcomes, just as I have had here in Stanford and in California. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you again, Minister Sturgeon, for taking some time to be here at Stanford. Uh, that was a fantastic talk with lots of big, hard, complex questions that uh, I hope will continue in the discussion. I'm going to ask the first question, if I may, and then I'm going to open it up to the floor. Uh, and uh, just help us understand a little bit the procedural piece of uh, the process of having another referendum. Uh, we Americans, we have this thing called the Constitution. It's written <laughs> down. It's a, we go to it. We refer to it. Uh, is Gerhard Casper here? There he is. He usually has it in his pocket, just so you know, uh, our former president here at Stanford University. Um, your system is a little different. So tell us about how that works and, and just the procedural piece. Um, no, it's a very good question. Uh, bear with me. Uh, we, we don't have anything <laughs> as, as simple or uh, as straightforward as a written constitution in the United Kingdom. Uh, we, do, we do have a constitution. It's often said that the UK doesn't have a constitution. Of course we do. It's just right. not written down and codified in the way that the United States Constitution is. Uh, that said, in, in terms of the, the, the division of responsibilities between the United Kingdom government and the devolved governments, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, uh, there is more written down than is the case in terms of the Constitution overall in the UK. Uh, because the legislation that created the Scottish Parliament delineates uh, some of our responsibilities, which gets me to the nub of your question. Uh, the, the, the legislation that set up the Scottish Parliament effectively says that some things uh, remain the responsibility of the United Kingdom government and everything else is the responsibility of the Scottish Parliament. One of the things that it reserved to the United Kingdom government is the constitution, uh, which is quite a, a vague term. Uh, it's never been tested in court, but in 2014, uh, we accepted that for there to be a referendum in Scotland, for the Scottish Parliament to legislate for a referendum, it required uh, the legal consent of the United Kingdom government. And that, in 2014, was conferred through what became known as the Edinburgh Agreement. Um, that's the stage we're at now of seeking that legal consent from the Westminster uh, government to legislate for a, an independence referendum. Uh, which at the moment they're saying they're not willing to give. And, and that's me brought you right up to date in terms of, of the stage uh, we're at. You know, that is not a sustainable position, frankly, for uh, the UK government to take. It's, it's a bit of a, a holding position just now. Um, there will be another referendum on Scottish independence of that, I am I'm, I'm fairly certain. Um, and the more important debate, of course, is, is should we be independent, the reasons for that, and the benefits that that, that will bring. Great. Okay, the floor is open. Uh, this gentleman right here first, yes. And if you could just uh, tell us who you are and ask a question. Good afternoon. Uh, that was a fantastic uh, speech. It, it uh, evoked a lot of emotions in me. Uh, I am Mani Janaki Raman. Uh, I'm, I'm British. I come from United Kingdom. Um, but I, I was born, not born in uh, United Kingdom. I am from, originally from India. Uh, the <coughs> I, I have a couple of things. Um, How about just one? Okay. <laughs> um, I think I, I, wrote, I wrote an open letter on my LinkedIn page to the Prime Minister today. Um, I think um, my, my view is um, if we remain together, we can achieve more. Now, you have, um, as, a, as a First Minister of Scotland, you have a, a lot of uh, goodwill among various European countries, and uh, we need all of those goodwill. To, uh, to get favorable outcome when we negotiate with the European Union. So why don't you stay together and uh, we'll fight together. We'll get all those provisions that we want, that all the hard fought things that we got as part of the European Union, and we will still get them when we have the negotiations. Okay. I mean, that's, that's a fair question. And, and let me be very clear. Uh, I. I hope that the United Kingdom government succeeds in its ambition to 
uh, strike a deal with the European Union that delivers uh, you know, good trade and, and good cooperation. And I will play as constructive a role uh, in trying to achieve that as I possibly can. And I've made that very, very clear. Um, I have doubts about whether that is achievable in the, the, the way that the Prime Minister has set out. Um, I struggle to uh, see how the, the UK can get to a position where it has all of the benefits of EU membership, none of the downsides, and, and nobody loses out as a result of that. I, I think that just stretches uh, credibility. Uh, and therefore, I think it is, although I would be delighted to be proved wrong on this, I think it is likely that the United Kingdom uh, will pay a price economically, uh, socially, in terms of its, its contribution to the world uh, from the, the act of, of Brexit. Which takes me to the democratic argument at the heart of the, the case about Scotland. Um, Scotland didn't vote for that. And you know, should it be in a position where it's, it is required to go down that path, regardless of what the consequences might be uh, or not? And you know, when we get to the end of the Brexit process, you know, okay, people in Scotland might look at that and say, well, okay, that's fine. We're happy to go down that road. Uh, or they might not. But my fundamental point is that that should be a choice for people in Scotland, not a choice that is taken by the UK government for us. So it's, it's about the, the principle of democratic choice uh, that I'm, I'm talking today. But none of that uh, should be interpreted as me hoping or wanting uh, anything but the best from the deal that the Prime Minister will try to strike. Um, I hope she succeeds in that um, and will be able to judge the outcome in due course. You cut my eye next. Yes, please. Hi, Nicola. Um, I'm a master's student here studying international policy. Um, I think with many of my friends, we've often looked quite jealously north of the border um, at many of the policies that, that, that your government and other governments have enacted, not least tuition fees. Um, <laughs> but my, 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 my question um, uh, is really regarding the process of the referenda. Uh, of, of, of referenda in general in the UK. Um, I think along with many others, um, the Brexit referendum seemed to, to, to take place in a, a cacophony of noise, which seemed to exclude uh, informed opinion and, and, and discredit all voices. Um, and I wonder how, how you would see um, or, or, or seek to ensure that a, a, a referendum on Scottish independence would, would be made and, and argued on the facts. That's a great question. Um, and thank you for your comment about Scottish government policies. I am a great believer in uh, access to universities based on your ability to learn, not your ability to pay. It's, it's how I uh, got to study at, at Glasgow University uh, in Scotland, not Montana. And <laughs> I'm not sure if Glasgow, Montana has a university. We're working on it. We're not. working on it. Um, so it, it's a policy I feel very strongly about. Um, your, your question about... Uh, the, the nature of the EU referendum is a really important one. Um, the, the difference between the independence referendum in 2014 uh, and the EU referendum two years later can't be overstated. There were two completely different experiences. Um, the, the referendum on independence was uh, very well informed. Now, you know, not everybody would have agreed with the information that, and, and the answers to the questions that those of us in the Yes campaign put forward. Uh, but there was you know, a wealth of information there for people to access. And the population generally became incredibly well-educated and well-informed about the issues at stake. You know, Scotland, in the, the summer running up to the referendum in some, September 2014, you know, people were talking about the finer points of macroeconomic policy uh, and currency and lenders of last resort in, in the pubs and clubs and restaurants right across the country. So it was a, a debate that had a, a high level of understanding of the issues at stake. The EU referendum, by contrast, uh, had none of that. You know, the, the information that people had was reduced to, uh, I was going to say a slogan, it's probably more accurate to call it a lie on the side of a double-decker bus. Uh, and nine months on from that vote, there are still no answers to some really fundamental questions about what Brexit will mean for the UK. So as I look ahead to the possibility of a, another independence on uh, Scottish, uh, another referendum on Scottish independence, uh, people often say to me, you know, you, you'll try to run it like the EU referendum and just, you know, get people to vote purely on emotion and, and you know, keep it a fact-free uh, zone. 
you know, let me say, I would not want the, the independence of my country. I, I fervently I hope for the independence of my country. I wouldn't want it to be won on the basis of a campaign that was as dishonest as the EU referendum campaign. So I've been absolutely crystal clear that if people in Scotland are to have a choice again, it must be a genuinely informed choice. Uh, and that means in this context that the, the terms of Brexit must be clear for people to make a judgment about, but also the opportunities and the challenges, uh, because there are both, of independence must equally be clear. So we're, uh, we, uh, by that I mean my party rather than the Scottish Government, we're doing a lot of work just now on the economic case for independence, on issues like currency, uh, in light of the changes that, that Brexit will entail. And we will publish uh, all of that material well in advance of asking people to make a choice so that that choice is one that is genuinely based on information and evidence uh, enabling people to make a choice that is informed. Please. Hi, uh, my name is Zoe Ashwood. I'm originally from Falkirk, which is halfway between Edinburgh and Glasgow. Um, but I'm currently working and studying here at Stanford. Uh, so my question for the First Minister is why, after finishing my programme here at Stanford, I should return to Scotland. Um, in particular, our major exports are oil, whisky and salmon, and my <laughs> career interests are not in any of these sectors. Um, so what are the major economies that the First Minister wants to see thrive in an independent Scotland? What are, you've mentioned renewable technologies, but what yep. are the other areas? Um, given that Ireland in the decades following its independence uh, suffered from net emigration, how will Scotland retain its own talent and attract talent from other countries? Great question. I, I should say, you are the second person from Falkirk that I have met <laughs> in the last two days in California. Uh, so there's, there's a Falkirk cluster here in California, uh, which is, is absolutely fantastic. That's a great question. Um, you know, we've, you, you mentioned some of the great strengths of the, the Scottish economy, energy, uh, traditionally oil and gas, but now increasingly renewable energy, food and drink, uh, not just whiskey and salmon, although they are hugely important, but our food and drink, uh, sector generally is booming at the moment. Exports have grown uh, amazingly. It's one of the best performing sectors of our economy. So these are uh, huge economic success stories that I'll never apologise for because they are so important and they have got the potential to keep people in Scotland and attract a lot of people to Scotland. But they're not the only great things about our economy. So one of the things we've been talking about here in California is the, the success, the growing success of our tech sector. Uh, we've got the, the biggest uh, tech accelerator hub anywhere in the UK based in Edinburgh. We've got you know, fantastic strengths in uh, data analy analytics, uh, informatics. Edinburgh University is doing some of the, the best work in the world around all of that just now. Uh, Lena Wilson, the chief executive of uh, Scottish Enterprise, is with me uh, on this trip and has been making the point uh, on several occasions in the last couple of days there are more uh, startups uh, in Scotland in the, the recent uh, months than there have been in, in London. So we are, we're a, we've got the people, uh, we've got the academic <coughs> expertise, we've got a, a commitment to and a culture of innovation. Uh, we're also um, a more cost-effective place for people to come and invest in, and do business. So we've got a whole range of different strengths and attributes. You know, we've got innovate, a number of innovation centres that are looking at the areas that we want to be the, the strengths, areas where we have a comparative advantage. One of the, the things we've decided as a country, partly because we are small, is that we want to focus on the things that we can do really, really well. You know, countries can often make the mistake of trying to do a bit of everything, and Scotland could do lots and lots of things, but we're focusing on the things that we can do well. So uh, that and the fact we've got better weather than California, I think you have to come <laughs> back uh, to Falkirk. Way in the back, yes. Oh, actually, I pointed to the other person, but I'll get back to you too if we have time, okay? Hello, Christine Meyer is my name. So um, I'm European citizen who gained my PhD from Heritage University, and I'm going back to Heritage in a couple of weeks, actually. Um, and all the Brexit and India Ref debate is a lot of uncertainties for European citizens living in UK right now, I guess. Um, and I would like to know how would you address the European citizens, how, how, um, how um, sorry, how, uh, what do you think, what would you do 
if in case IndiaRef is not working out? What would you do to help the European citizens to feel safe and home in Scotland, as I've done a couple of years ago? Well, that, that's a good question because there are many people uh, from other European countries living in Scotland and the rest of the UK just now who are feeling very uncertain about their futures. And, and my view is there's no reason for them to feel that uncertainty. I, I think it is, and I, I use this word uh, cautiously, uh, I think it is really shameful that the United Kingdom government has not given a very straightforward, unambiguous, unequivocal, unilateral guarantee that people from other European countries living in the EU will be able to continue to live there uh, regardless of what happens with Brexit. And the fact that that hasn't been done, effectively what they're doing is trying to use EU nationals as bargaining chips uh, so that, well, well, we'll allow them to stay if we get something in return. Uh, human beings are not bargaining chips and people who've built lives and careers and have families should not be used in that way. Um, so we have argued very strongly for that certainty to be given uh, immediately and if not immediately, which hasn't been then as quickly as possible. If Scotland became, becomes independent, um, certainly if I or my party have anything to do with it, there will be an absolute unequivocal guarantee. Anybody who's living in Scotland will have the right to continue uh, to live there. Um, and that's, you know, I, I want to stress that that's not just for altruistic reasons of principle and morality, important though that is. We need people to come to Scotland to work and to, to study and to invest because of the, the nature of our own uh, demographics. We need that to happen. So we will continue to uh, do everything, and I personally will continue to do everything I possibly can uh, to, to make clear that Scotland is a, an open and welcoming place for people who want to, to go there. Um, and that applies to European Union nationals, but it applies uh, to people from any other parts of the world as well. Right here. Hi, I'm Marcos Kunalakis. I'm a graduate and a fellow at Central European University in Budapest, but also a visiting fellow here at the Hoover Institution. And my question really looks at this European mm. uh, Union issue. You spoke so beautifully about the universal values and the national interests that are served by your institutions, the universities and their freeness and openness and inclusiveness. But uh, in the heart of the European Union that you are so committed to, there is currently an assault and hostility towards these very same institutions. Do you, in your role, plan to work with other members of the European Union to actually confront some of this hostility expressed by Viktor Orban and the Hungarian government? Absolutely. That, that in, in my view, is, is one of the values of the European Union should be the ability to challenge uh, and to, to work together uh, to progress the kind of values that I've been talking about. Um, one of the consequences of, of the Brexit debate in the UK is, uh, as, as these debates often are, they become quite polarised. So you're either for the EU or against the EU. Um, I'm for it, but I don't believe it's perfect by any stretch of the imagination. In terms of its own institutional arrangements, it's not perfect. In terms of uh, some of uh, how it, it pursues uh, its goals, it's not perfect. And of course, there are uh, governments and practices within it that I would not agree with as a a progressive politician um, and I you know I've got to be slightly careful what I say here I'm in the United States but I believe we should always stand up uh, for values we hold dear even if at times that can be diplomatically uh, uncomfortable so yes I, I very much uh, agree that part of the responsibility of, of any politician that holds uh, the values I've been talking about is, is to challenge where those values uh, are, are honoured more in the breach uh, than, than anything else. Here in the front. Thank you, First Minister. I'm Sarah Cormac Patton. I'm a postdoctoral scholar at the Europe Centre here, and I'm from Aberdeen. Um, my question for you is: about 20% of people who are born in Scotland live outside of Scotland. At the time of the 2014 referendum, we were going to be granted citizenship, but couldn't vote mm. on independence itself. What would you say to people who think that this is undercutting Scottish democracy? And are there any thoughts of changing the electorate for the next referendum? This is a really vexed question. I, uh, in, it is a tough question. It's a question that uh, I thought about long and hard, as did the Scottish Government. Before I was First Minister, at the, in the time of the last referendum, I had uh, responsibility then as Deputy First Minister to, to take the legislation for the Scottish referendum through the Scottish Parliament. 
and establishing the franchise who could vote in that referendum was one of the, the issues, obviously, that we thought most deeply about. Uh, I've got huge sympathy and had huge sympathy for people who were born in Scotland, who lived outside of Scotland, who felt you know, that they should have had the right to vote but, but didn't and felt uh, a disappointment, sometimes a, a sense of anger about that. Really, it, it boiled into this, and we, we thought long and hard about this, is we, we based a franchise on residency in Scotland. So to vote in the referendum, you didn't have to be born in Scotland, you just had to live there. So EU nationals, uh, people from other European countries voted in the independence referendum. They weren't allowed to vote in the EU referendum, but they voted in the independence referendum. So we took that view that it was residency. If you lived in Scotland, in our view, you were Scottish and had a contribution and should have a stake in that decision. The problem with departing from that principle is as soon as you do it, the, the question is where do you draw the line? And that became an impossible question to answer. So somebody who had been born in Scotland but who had lived outside Scotland for five years, should that be the line? Or, or 10 years? Or 20 years? Or 40 years? What about somebody who hadn't been born in Scotland but whose parent had been born in Scotland? And so that really is the reason after a lot of agonising, and it was <laughs> agonising, we decided to stick with the residency principle. Because once you depart from it, it becomes impossible to draw a line that doesn't leave somebody on the wrong side of that line and feeling a sense of grievance and injustice. Would we change that in future? Um, I, I suspect not is, is the honest answer to that. Uh, and I would feel probably as conflicted and as uh, bad in some respects the next time as I did the last time but unless we can find a, you know, a, a credible answer to that question, where do you draw the line? It's very difficult, I think, to go down that road. So right back here, I think you'll have the last question, okay? So it better be really good. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no pressure. Um, uh, thank you very much. My name is Eva. Um, I'm Stanford Russian conference delegate um, and I'm studying in Oxford at the University of Oxford now but originally I'm from Russia so um, I have question about Brexit because as you know right after it was huge discussion and even real petitions that votes should be um, taking place again like second um, a referendum and even to be honest last petition I saw it was millions of uh, people who signed it while uh, the government stated that it's not going to be happen like it's not going to happen at any case so um, and after even this like media uh, stopped talking about this about this opportunity to have maybe second vote because even because of this misinformation uh, because of these buses with these hashtags yeah. and even because even young people didn't vote because as far as I know it was only like 30% of young people who voted like who even appeared because they thought it's just hilarious campaign so I yeah I just wanted to ask maybe why it's not going to happen or or maybe Scotland wants to uh, have second vote instead, like this. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I, th this is a prediction that may uh, turn out to be wrong. I don't think there will be a second referendum on EU membership in the UK. The debate within the UK is, is not really about having a second referendum on the principle. It's about the possibility of a referendum at the end of the negotiation to agree or not agree the terms of Brexit. Now, generally, I, I wouldn't uh, favour that kind of, you know, you have a principal uh, vote and then you have a, a vote on the detail later on. I suppose, looking at it from the other angle, the, the, the argument that there would uh, be in relation to Brexit, which wouldn't have been the case with the independence referendum, comes back to the point I was making. There was so little detail in the Brexit referendum, um, and even today, we don't know what the terms are going to be. I think there is an argument that can be made. It's not one that I'm making, but there is an argument that can be made that there should be a vote to, to agree the terms. Politically, though, I, from, from this vantage point, I don't believe that will happen because I don't think there is uh, the, the political support for it. The, the government is very opposed to it. And we have a a bit of an issue in the, the UK just now about the lack of any real credible opposition to the government. Um, <laughs> but uh, apart from my party, thank you for that. But, <laughs> but, uh, but 
I, I don't see where the coalition of support w would come from for that. But, you know, Brexit has got lots of twists and turns yet to come. So my prediction uh, today may turn out to be completely wrong. Who knows? Well, we will celebrate on Thursday, I promise you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for such a fantastic address and for taking time to be with us here today at Stanford. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Follow us on Twitter at FSI Stanford or visit our website at fsi.stanford.edu for more events and expertise from the world of international studies.